Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Alright guys, welcome back to another episode of Growth Minds. Today we have the real Wolf of Wall Street, Jordan Belfort. Thanks so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. So for the small percentage of people, obviously the there was an entire movie that featured your story and the ups and downs that came through it. But in your own words, how would you kind of describe in in, in a concise manner the kind of the, the overview of the story that you went through and just so that we can cover this first before we get through some of the other stuff that you're working on now. Sure. So basically, you know, at a very young age, in my early 20s, I... Um, went down to Wall Street and I quickly um, started my own brokerage firm selling uh, five to ten dollar stocks to the wealthiest one percent of Americans and no one had ever tried that before and um, I invented a system that actually allowed average people to become world-class salespeople. So it was a, a way of training salespeople. So between those two things, finding this niche in the market, this 5 to $10 stocks um, to the richest 1%, and then also just um, you know teaching people how to close. So it was a one-two punch that allowed any kid to make millions of bucks a year um, back in the 80s when making millions a year, late 80s, early 90s, when making a million a year was huge, right? Oh, yeah. um, I was making about 50 million plus a year back then, and everything just went crazy. I was from a poor family, and I just you know lived out every adolescent fantasy I have all still in my 20s, and, uh, and ultimately I made a, a very big mistake of smuggling money to Switzerland, uh, which, which uh, created a money wondering charge i was trying to evade taxes and uh and there you go and i ended up doing some time in jail and um 22 months and when i was in jail i wrote this i started writing this memoir and lo and behold this memoir became the wolf of wall street and it was made into movie by leo dicaprio marty scorsese and it became a huge hit around the world and to this day it's still a cult hit that gets watched by pretty much every single kid uh anyone who's under the age of 30 has seen the movie multiple times so it's a pretty uh pretty great movie and uh it continues to go yeah i I don't know very i don't know many people that haven't heard about the story and i feel like it's one of those legacy movies that even with time it'll kind of age really well it's just one of those things that yeah it has a really heartfelt story around kind of the the comeback and reinvention that you've done which we'll go into um 50 million. Oh my God. What is that today in today's dollars back in the 1980s? It's it's the equivalent because it's not just the equivalent in terms of inflation, just the fact that no one made that kind of money back then. There were no hedge funds really making money. So, like the top at the high end of Wall Street, you had um, Michael Milken, who also went to jail, right, a few Mm. years before me, and he made about $500 million. And that was just unheard of, you know? Um, And other than that, there were just there were no. It wasn't. It just wasn't like it is today. You didn't hear about these massive paychecks. So, um, fifty million dollars would have put me up one of the top earners on Wall Street and in the country back then. So it's, it was a different world. You know, that's crazy. And obviously, there are 
people that do this where they launder money in, in, in terms of Switzerland? Like what, what was it about the situation that you were in that, that made this into more of like a, yeah, more, more of into like punishment? I got caught. <laughs> I had bad luck. I mean, like my, the banker that I was using there just coincidentally was the banker for Benihana. And uh, the Japanese Stevie, restaurants. Stevie, and, we've um, had Stevie Oki on the show, actually. His, his yeah, dad, well, his right? dad, right? His, yeah. dad, his dad got involved in some stuff. And whether or not, I don't even think his dad went to jail for it, but his dad just got involved with some stuff with offshore boat racing and somehow there was drug money involved. His dad wasn't laundering money or anything. It's just that it was somehow tangentially involved. And they yeah. started chasing after him. And then they, they, they were trying to get him and they got the banker. And when the banker was caught in the u.s he started giving up people that were doing business with this bank he's like oh you know jordan belfort and there you go and that's how it started oh because that would reduce his sentence basically by being able to give up yes give up more people yeah it was um, for everyone in the u.s it's like you know in the u.s it's very difficult because they say to you okay if you cooperate we'll give you like a year or two if you don't it's 30 years like everyone cooperates it's just like yeah. you know it's like it's very very common in white collar because the sentences are so long if you don't cooperate and very short if you do and you know no one ends up really getting hurt that badly i cooperated i i, I did actually time extra time because i refused to cooperate against a friend of mine but i gave information everyone does in the u.s it's a very common thing um even the mob does that like they say oh the mob doesn't talk everyone in the mob talks too because they they made the laws so so um punishing here that if you if you go to j- trial and you you're like done your life it's like 30 years so yeah. it, it's much easier to take a plea give them the information and you know you do a little bit of time that's what happens it's very, it's very, that's how the u.s works basically Right, because the punishment is just so high that they just try it's to. Too high, yeah. It's insane. There's no way you can. Pay, yeah, it's just it's really insane. So, um, and I'm not sure what. I think the banker ultimately he did about a year or two here, and then got deported back to Switzerland. But wow. he gave me up, and he gave up a few other people, and that's how it all started. Have you talked yeah. to him after? I have not, but I would. I, mean, I have nothing against the guy. I mean, he just he was like, you know, gonna, what was he going to do, right? He yeah. go through 30 years in jail. Of his, and it was like, it, you, know, so, you know, it turned out to be the greatest thing that ever happened to me. I would have never thought that when it was going on. Um, but, I mean, I have the most amazing life now um, because of all the things that, that I went through and, and lost everything and then had to build my life back again. And, you know, and the way in which I did that and the movie just, I mean, it turned out. Uh, it turned my own name into a brand that allows me to really just, you know, make as much money as I want the rest of my life and empower people all over the world with my mm. trainings and teachings and entrepreneurship and sales. So it gives me a really amazing platform. So I'm very lucky. I have amazing fans um, who love the story. They, they love the whole concept that it was like, you know, if you want to go out with the boys, you got to wake up with the men. Like we, we partied hard, but we worked hard. It wasn't just yeah. about party. It was partying hard, but working hard. We did it both. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. It's amazing. The reinvention story that you have. Um, so at this point, you know, what, what made you trigger that the, the kind of the idea of wanting to write a book about this and, and, and tell your story? Obviously, you knew that it was an interesting story, but, you know, what was that process of going through? Did you write the whole thing while you were in jail then? No. So how was I, I didn't think my story was that interesting. I mean, I know it was I mean, I guess it was OK. I thought it was OK. But um, when I went to jail, my bunkmate was Tommy Chong from Chichin Chang. 
He was oh, my yeah. bunkmate. He's a famous actor. And, and we would tell each other stories at night. And, um, you know, the third or fourth night, he's, he's like, buddy, I thought you were making this shit up. But my wife Googled you, but it's all true. He goes, you have to write a book about it. Your life is insane. I was like, really? You know, it's like my life. So I didn't realize how crazy it was. He's like, oh, my God, if you write this, this book would be a huge bestseller. I was like, really? He's like, definitely. So I started writing it. And at first I, I found it difficult to write. Ultimately, I taught myself to write while I was in jail by modeling famous authors like Tom Wolfe and Hunter S. Thompson. And then um, I wrote about 130 pages while I was in jail. And then I ripped them up. I didn't think they were good enough. When I got out, I started on page one again and I started writing. And I was like, wow, this seems pretty good. And when mm. I sent the pages to an agent, they went crazy for them. And then uh, very quickly after that, the book was sold before it was even written. Like on page maybe 30 it was sold to Random House. And I finished writing wow. the book over that year. Wow. I so said initially you wrote the whole thing just using paper. I wrote, I have, I believe it or not, my, my mother still has it. She, my mother still is early here. My, my mother still has the original um, manuscript that I, like the first early pages. They're terrible, oh by the way. I, mean, like, I, was, I, was just, I was just learning how to write, you know, and I didn't really know how. And, and um, I, you could see my writing improve and it's pretty interesting. Yeah. You could definitely sell these on NFTs now. You can make a killing with these. I'm sure I could, right? <laughs> I know, right? That's Crazy, awesome. Right? So you see, so, so now you, you've you've gone out. Well, this is one of the things I'm really curious about, right? So you you've had the highest of highs, and then obviously you've had the, the the low parts, and then you went through this process of really reinventing yourself. And one of the things that I, that I really admire about about you is that you you still seem very self assured uh, and, and confident. You know, not just for externally, but you seem to have this inner confidence within you. And this is one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about because a lot of people, when they start to build their self-esteem around something that is perhaps external or something that they can't really control, well, the moment they lose it, it's something that just crushes them, right? And a lot of people don't bounce back from that experience. One of the things that I want to talk to you about is, is I, I'm curious to know like where that confidence for you came from because it seems like even though you even though you did lose, you know, the, the, the kind of the, the wealth initially that you had, you were able to bounce back and, and still have that level sure. of confidence yeah. in you. So I think some of it comes to the fact that I knew in, in my heart of hearts, I knew that I possessed very, very powerful skill sets for making money. Like, like the actual skills that I that I have, that I worked hard to perfect over the years. Things like being a world-class closer, negotiator, knowing the rules of entrepreneurship. And also I have on the mindset side, what's up here, I, I have the ability, I've trained myself to get myself to do the things I don't feel like doing. I, I can do them every day. And it's like, I can get myself to do the things I know I have to do even when I don't want to do them. And I think the biggest problem that a lot of people have that are not successful is that in their heart of hearts, they don't really believe they have what it takes to succeed. It's not a fear of failure that stops people. There's always this whole thing, oh, people don't take action because they don't want to fail. I guess that's true. Like, yeah, no one wants to fail, but I think it's really more about that when the average person 
projects out into the future is, well, I do all the work and I take the risk and I put the money in, do, put the time in. Can I really see myself succeeding at a high level? And when they run that movie, they don't really see it. They don't believe it. Like they see, I don't, I don't really think I'm an influencer or a persuader. I don't really know how to run a business. I don't know about marketing. They don't, so it doesn't seem possible. So their brain says, you know what? What's the point of doing it? I mean, what's the point of taking all the risk? What's the point of doing all the hard work if I'm probably not going to succeed anyway? In my mind, when I'm thinking about taking a decision, it never, ever occurs to me that I might fail because of me. Like, I, I'm not, I, I believe in my heart that I have what it takes to succeed on every level. So it's just about, well, I could be right. I could be wrong. And I'm wrong a lot. I take a lot of chances and I end up being wrong because the idea was flawed or I made an error in somewhere. But I never think it's because I don't have what it takes. So when you have that tacit self-belief in your own abilities, it opens the possibility for great things. Mm-hmm. That's number one. The other side is just knowing your why, knowing, you know, now it's a cliche, but, you know, when you truly understand why you want to come back from failure, why you want to succeed. Um, it's a very powerful thing too. So you combine those two things together. It was never a chance that I wouldn't end up wealthy. It was not, it was not a possibility The judge when the judge took my money at my sentencing, he's, and I had this big fine. He's like, you know, usually these fines are symbolic, but he'll pay it all back. He's he's a mutt earner. Like even the judge said it, like there's no way the guy's not going to just get out and just make a ton of money again, you know? So, and, and, and everyone in the, in the court was like, yeah, that's true. Even the prior, I guess that's true. You know, it was obvious, right? So, so, but that's not like magic. And I think what, I think what people need to understand is that it's not that I'm special. I just, I've worked really hard. Listen, I, I was blessed with some gifts, no doubt. Natural salesperson, you know, at a very high level, but that can be taught. You can learn that. You can become good enough. So, so you have what it takes to succeed. But over the years, I've just, you know, I've done a lot of work. I've, I've, I've trained myself to take action. And anyone can do that. That anyone can do that. So, so, and that's really the things that I teach people when I coach people, when I, when I, you know, whether it's in sales or entrepreneurship, is this idea that, you know, Almost all things in life can be learned and modeled. Now, I'm, I'm like, if I want to become a professional tennis player, well, honestly, I'm probably I'm never going to be as good as like Roger Federer, or even or even be able to get a game. I could take lessons from today to the end of my life. I don't possess the natural abilities to be Roger Federer or Rafael Nadal hmm. or anyone like that. But I can take lessons and get really damn good and beat any club player. So like the same thing goes, maybe I'm never going to train myself how to code and become Zuckerberg, but I can certainly get good enough that I can hire a Zuckerberg and do exactly There's nothing holding you back from achieving success. And I think if people start to look at, at life like that, that I have the ability to learn what I need to learn, find the people I need to find, know who I need to know, it, it starts to open up a lot of possibilities. Yeah. And how do you think you can, how do you think people can train themselves or how, how do you think you can train themselves and give advice to those people that may not have it? Because obviously you were able to come back because you've already achieved a great level of success initially. So you knew you could do it again. And it was like the self-affirming belief, but initially, how do you, how do you get sure. there? So I, I think that when I, when I walk around the streets of wherever I am, anywhere in the world, People constantly come up to me. I mean, every literally. If I, I can't walk from here to there without someone 
whether it's the gas station attendant, the parking, the guy who's working in the hotel or the person driving in the car next to me or someone in a restaurant, they want a picture or something. And the one comment they always make to me very more than anything else is you changed my life. Thank you for the stuff that you teach me. It just, it really, really changed my life. And it, it made me understand that I had what it takes. Like, I think that I do that. I you know the reason that my, my brand is so strong, why people respect the comeback stories, because a lot of my comeback was based on helping other people become successful. Like most people in my position that are speakers, they never actually were successful in the real world. Like they kind of like made money selling books and tapes. They never actually did it. They didn't really possess the things, the skills they were teaching people. They they make their they became wealthy because they were teaching others. They didn't become wealthy in the real world. So I, I had that ability of having, of having the, the people have, say, wow, you know, he actually did this stuff in the real world. He, he's a real business person. He understands this stuff. He's not just regurgitating something, someone else's information and trying to make money. So I think people trust the teachings a lot more from someone like that. And I'm not the only person. There's many, there's so, so, some, uh, some great mentors out there. And there are some, a lot of really bad ones too, but there are a few really great mentors besides me out there. So I think that, um, I think that every, I think you, it starts with, you know, you know, this old adage in, um, in Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, I'm I'm powerless over drugs and alcohol, right? My life is out of control and, you know, you know, I've lost control, right? It starts with just admitting the fact that, you know what, A, that I don't have all the skills it takes right now to achieve success. It's understanding, getting honest with yourself. It's the first step is always getting honest. Like I need help. I want to be rich. I want to be successful. I want to live an empowered life, whatever that means to you. Doesn't, there's no set amount of money or success. It's different to everyone. And right now, I don't know exactly how to do that. I need to find someone to help me do that. I need There are skills I need to learn, things I need to know. And then you have to seek someone. That's step one. Once you're at that step one, you admit to yourself, I need help. I need a mentor. I need, I need, I need to learn stuff. I didn't learn it in school. I wasn't born with it. Didn't see it in my parents or I grew up. That's step one. Without that, it's very difficult to help people because they have no self-awareness. They need help. Once yeah. someone gets to that spot, and it's pretty common, most people do get to that spot pretty quickly, then if you seek out the right person, it's life-changing for you. And you take the right courses. I remember it's like, you know, it's the same thing. Uh, many people had this in school when they were growing up. It was like there was they didn't really do well in school. Then they had this one teacher that they loved and this one teacher opened up their eyes to the value of education and they embraced this one teacher and they got an A in that subject and for many people it changed their entire academic career. One teacher influenced their entire life. Yeah. Many people have that. Well, the same thing goes in business. It's just one mentor, one person you see that almost changes your perspective and it just, it can be just a massive tectonic shift in someone's life. And it Who's happens that for all you? the time at me. And, no one for me. I, I, I never had that. In other words, for me, I didn't ha- I didn't need that because I so I was one of the, the rare people. I am. It's a rare thing that I was born with a very, very strong entrepreneurial mindset, a set of beliefs, whatever reasons why about that were very empowering for making money. And I had some very important root experiences at a very young age, which made me think about things in a certain way. Like I had some huge successes in my teens where I took action on an idea I had and I made massive sums of money and that sort of created a way of thinking about being in business for myself and empowerment. And I was blessed with a very, very na- a high level of sales ability naturally. And then yeah. I figured stuff, stuff out through trial. I didn't have a lot of mentors, but I would, if I could have found one, 
Wow, I would have, I mean, damn, I would have taken one in two seconds. So I, I just be honest, I didn't have one early on at all. I read a lot of books and stuff, but I didn't have many mentors. If I had some mentors, I probably would have avoided, avoided going to jail because I ended up having the wrong mentor at some point in time who so, showed me some things that really weren't 100% legitimate. And I always have to be the best at everything I do. So, sure. you know, I was the best at doing that. So nice. What were you selling when you were young? What was the first thing that you ever sold? Well, I mean, I, I was selling shit since I was like five years old and lemonade stands and, oh and stuff God. like that. And um, I, you know, I, I was I had a newspaper route, was knocking on doors at the age of eight. At the age of 10, I was going door to door and selling. Um, I was shoveling people's driveways at the snowstorm at 12 years old. I was doing magic shows. But then I but that was all minor stuff. At the age of 16, I hit it big for the first time. I was I was selling ices blanket to blanket on a large Jones beach in New York. And I was, and I, and literally the first day I tried this, I made 120 bucks in one hour in 1978, which is the making 400 an hour Five, right now. Yeah, and that was the moment that changed my life. Wow. That changed my life at that, that moment. And I, and that first summer when I was 16, I made about $26,000 in two months, far more than my parents made, anyone in my neighborhood made, and I'll never forget that, and that was, that was it. From that moment forward, it never in my life occurred to me I wouldn't be filthy rich, but I just knew it. Like, I was destined for this stuff, and it was yeah. a very strong root belief. And, and then I trained myself to, like, at 16 years old, no matter how much I didn't want to get out of bed in the morning. I could always get myself to go to the beach. I could always get myself out of bed at 6 a.m. to go down to the ice cream distributor, load up a cooler and go down to the beach. So those like those early things that happened in my life. And, they, and, and the payoff was far more than wealth. It was the respect of my friends and the awe of girls that would see me on the beach. And I was the vendor and I was in great shape. And it just felt so great to get that significance and all these things that happened to me when I was 16, 17 years old. By the time I went to college, it was like, all right, let's get into the real world so I can get super rich. You know, yep. never thought I'd work for someone else. Got it. Got it. So this is kind of the, the obviously the motive. Initially, you knew that you, you realized that you were able to make money. And I guess that provided you independence. And then as you got older, it was the girls, it was the cars, it was the materialistic things that allowed you with money to buy those things. I mean, at this point in your life, once you have now established yourself, I know you have uh, someone in your life as a partner. So it's not like girls is really what's going to be motivating she's you. She's from Argentina, by the way. She's from close. She's from right by Brazil. She's Argentinian. Is she uh, from Buenos Aires? Buenos Aires. Well, she's originally from Cordoba, but now she lives in, in Buenos Aires. Now she lives here with me, but you know, if we're engaged, but uh, um, yeah, and she's gorgeous, beautiful girl yes. and a sweetheart. Great. And I, I, I've always, I've been lucky. I've had many beautiful wives and women throughout the years and, and sometimes sweet ones too. <laughs> she's a sweet <laughs> one. <laughs> and, um, and um, yeah, so I have. So I guess your question is like, you know, what do you do when you when you when you get everything you want? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm sure there is a lot of things. It, it, that's it's no doubt that someone that is Type A or ambitious is always going to look for more meaning and more things in your life. But yeah, obviously, I guess my question is like, how has that changed over time for you as you started to find more success, and how do you continue to motivate yourself? So. For me, a big a big part of this is being right. 
I love being, I love having an idea and trying to make it work. And I don't mind the struggles and the down and like the down moments. Like it's all about the journey for me. I enjoy the journey of entrepreneurship. And at this point in my life, I literally have so, it's like so easy for me to make as much money as I want. It really is. I mean, it's like, it's like nothing. It's like literally it gets thrown when you, when you have a brand like this, it's very easy. So I could theoretically sit back right now and, and do kind of nothing. You know, I really could. And make I make probably five ten million a year in my sleep but that's not fun for me it's like not it doesn't doesn't turn me on I probably uh, go crazy pretty quickly so I'm constantly looking for businesses to invest in and and mostly invest my time most of the time I'm trading my time for equity in people's companies mm-hmm. um, I love to consult with entrepreneurs I have a lot of oh, really I do a lot of high level consulting where people pay me a lot of money you know on an annual contract over seven figures a year to consult with them and really help them grow their business that's the stuff I love and I'm always looking for like the latest you know what's the new newest idea that I can, you know, really get sink my teeth into and help a business grow. Like I'm getting involved heavily in blockchain right now and cryptocurrency and a lot of technology solutions for selling. And this, I have all this different stuff I'm always involved in. Got it. Got it. Yeah. I remember one of the biggest pivotal points in my life was the idea where not trading time for money. And it was just like this pivotal thing because I grew up in a conservative family where my mom's a nurse, my dad is in real estate. And it's not necessarily about, you know, buying equity. People just didn't really understand that, right? Is either be a doctor or a lawyer, all of which you can trade time for money. And it was this pivotal point. And I think a lot of people have a difficult time, uh, especially starting out, understanding the, the power in that, particularly with the exponential growth that you see if you have equity in certain tech companies or certain things like cryptocurrency. I mean, what do you think are some of the misconceptions that people have around money that, you know, it maybe comes natural for you, but as you start to coach and consult and speak around, like, what are some of the things that, you know, some of the biggest lessons you've learned about it? Because clearly one thing you know how to do is make money, Jordan. That's true. Um, one thing I've learned that you can, the, 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 the hardest working people I know make the least amount of money. Like it's not about hard work. I mean, you have to work hard as an entrepreneur for a time, but it's not like hard work equals lots of money. Like people that like punch a clock working like, oh my God, they work really, really hard. They make almost nothing. So yeah. like to me, there's, there's there's two ways to get rich in this world. You know, A is to own your own business. That's number one. And that could be a real estate investor like that. So, you know, it doesn't have to be a traditional business, but you have some way of leveraging and buying things and, and using a leverage to, you know, acquire real estate or invest in the stock market. That's one. Another way. So that's all in being a business owner. And the other way is as a salesperson. So there are some really, really high commission salesperson out there that, that really can make, get rich like that and then take the earnings and start investing it and bridging up. I, I don't think you can, it's very difficult to get rich. Um, as a paycheck player, I, I consult with some lawyers, their clients, and they make a lot of money, right? They're in the immigration space. They make, one makes 10 million a year, another makes 5 million a year, right? They do really well. And they had come up with a way of like helping immigrants, illegal immigrants get their green cards faster, right? Mm. And she was unable to convince 
anybody to take her up on her offer and she was making very little money. Then she was in the airport one day and she picked up my book and she started reading my book. Oh my God. And, and it changed her life. And the next year she made 5 million in the year after that 10, because at the end of the day, it was the ability to close. That was the skill set that made her rich. So like, yeah, she's a lawyer, but she's in a lawyer that knows how to sell. <laughs> like she combines sales with law sales would be. So, so like, you know, what I'm saying is like, it's such a crucial linchpin skill, being able to sell, influence, persuade, close the deal that without it, it's really hard to make money no matter what you do. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I think those are the real, the, the, the easiest paths. I, I think that if you want to get rich, Taking that, going to a four-year college and going into an MBA program, that is not a path to wealth for me. Uh, I'm not saying it's not a good thing to do. I'm not saying it all, because for some people, it could be a good thing to do. Like my daughter went to college. She went to college, went to grad school. She's a psychologist. She has a license. She needs a license to do that. That was a great move for her in her career decision. But if you're an entrepreneur, I mean, you don't need to go to college. You just don't. I mean, I, I really would. I would advise you not to go to college if you're an entrepreneur. I think it's a complete waste of time. It's a jerk off experience, really. I think sure. you're much better off going into the real world and try to get down to some startups and learn the game and, and learn what it's really like to get into business. Um, I think college is a disaster that gives people limiting beliefs and and sets them up for mediocrity. Yeah, yeah. I guess there is like a segment of people that want to be entrepreneurs. They know that need to be entrepreneurs and then they figure out opportunities around that. And then I guess this case is like your daughter who has a special skill. That, let's that, say, that's different. They should they need to go to college. They should go. That's a great thing. They should go. If you totally. want to be a lawyer, you gotta to go to college. If you want yeah. to be a lawyer, you gotta to go to college. If yeah. you if you wanna be a doctor, you gotta to go to college. If you wanna work at a if your desire is I wanna work at IBM or so you gotta to go to college. But if you wanna be a, a rich entrepreneur, that's how, it's the worst play that you could do, I think. For sure. Well, what I, I was think saying, anyone, any of those big tech guys would say the same thing that they dropped out of college. They're like, fuck this. I'm not staying here anymore. You know, totally, totally. And I think even those people that may not, you know, go to school for entrepreneurship, they, they could in, in many instances leverage their skills to start their own company where they'll have a competitive advantage. You know, like let's say mental health is a big thing and that's something that your daughter can get involved in potentially right. if that's what she wants to do. So yeah, I think, it, I think it's not necessarily that. You know, it's it's just for entrepreneurs. Like, there's not different saying paths it's a bad it. thing in college. It's just not to everyone. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, so this idea of, of of selling, this is really what you have built your brand around, and and it's really how you found your initial success, right? It wasn't necessarily that you had this competitive advantage in terms of the the finance world. It was really the the secret sauce was selling. And you're now teaching this to other people. And I guess I'm curious to know, when I think of salespeople, you kind of think of some of the other players in the market. I mean, I think, I think maybe some people look and compare you as like the Grant Cardones of the world or other, some of the other players in the world. Uh, how would you differentiate yourself with, with some of the other players based on what you're selling now, which is the, the straight line sales? Yeah. Other than that, their stuff pretty much sucks and mine is great. I mean, that's probably the best differentiator. And they, I, I and saw your video with too. Greg Cardone. It was hilarious. Your interview was I mean, guys hilarious. are not knucklehead, but I know. But, uh, you know, listen, everyone steals my stuff. And, they, and 90% of the people out there using sales training are stealing my stuff and then repackaging it, right? Um, there are some good sales trainers out there. I don't want to say I'm the only one. There are some, there's no one's got a monopoly on great information. Uh, the straight line is special because, 
it's it's just in a, it's in a different league than any other system out there because it's just as an end to end solution that that it's it's just about it's honestly it's just as much as for communication as it is for selling it's just like how to be an effective communicator. Like I Chris I got him Chris Voss on my uh, podcast. I respect a lot. You know? Yeah, he's a former FBI negotiator, very smart guy, right? And I was like, there's so many overlaps between the stuff that he teaches from a world of knowledge that came from law enforcement and being a top negotiator at the FBI and what I do. And he's like, you know, and we're laughing because there's so much nonsense out there. And when you come down to it, it's like the two of us, our stuff is so closely aligned because there's really only one great truth about communication. And the rest of it's mostly just nonsense. Like there's certain laws of communication. It could be little nuances here and there. I say it's four seconds. He said it's seven seconds. But like there's like it's, it's the same stuff, right? And so you have to – it's really about like whose style of a legitimate sales trainer. Like there's so many nonsense sales trainers out there that just really are not – all they're trying to do is separate people from their money. That's really what it is, right? And they rely on the, oh, just you got to work hard. You got to work hard. But that's not about, that was the, the, the big time with Grant Cardone was, was bizarre, was that he's a, supposedly a sales trainer. He's like, there's no strategy. There's no secret. Just work my card, make a lot of dot. I'm like, oh, all right, come on. You're an idiot. You're just being an idiot. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So yeah. it's like, so, uh, and, and then um, there's a lot of people out there that just teach very watered down versions of what I teach. So for me, it's like, listen, I'm fortunate because I have a, a very different positioning in the market than all of them. Um, and I also have a commercial that plays every single day in every country in the world uh, where the fam- most famous actor in the world portrays me and with the best director in the world. So, like, I'm kind of lucky like that. I have a, an incredibly strong brand. And um, and over over time, I mean, it just it's just, you know, it, the truth has come out. So there you go. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think when people think about sales, some people may think it's sleazy or people have a negative connotation to it. So maybe we should just wrap this around and and talk about it as social skills and communication, because that's really a layer of selling in many ways. Um, For one, I guess, why do you think most people are so bad at selling? (laughs) Well, I think that I wouldn't say most people are so bad. I think that you know, they don't teach selling in school. Oh, Brazil, I'm actually doing a course for a Brazilian university right now. This week, I'm actually shooting the course for them. Oh, no They're making me teach it for, for, to college students. So I think that a very, very small percentage of human beings are born with this ability to know exactly what to say, when to say it, and how to say it in the context of selling. They just, it, it, they're natural born closers and they're very far and few between. And those people are lucky because their internal communications platform, like what they're thinking, is perfectly connected to what escapes their mouth, <laughs> like yeah. tonality, words, and body language. Like what happens with many people is they, they know what they want to say. And they actually think they're saying it the right way. They just don't realize how terrible they sound to other people. They're almost like tone deaf to their own communication. Like, hey, I want they sound excited. And they start talking. He's like, that's not exciting. Yes, it is. It sounds like they're half asleep and they right. think that's excitement. Right, so, right. so like there's a, there's a huge percentage of people that don't have a, a proper internal mechanism that, that they, they can't communicate what they're really feeling inside. That's a huge problem for people. 
Like they just not, they're just not wired that way. They're thinking something, they're feeling something. So it's a genuine emotion. They want to get out to other people. But when they try to do it, something is blocking it, whether it's limiting beliefs, embarrassment, or just whatever, or tone pure, physical tone deafness. They just don't, they just think they sound great and don't. Blocks them from being able to communicate in the way they want. Yeah. Language is rich. And part of our language is tonality. The tonalities that we apply to the words that we say and the body language that we use while we're saying it and while we're listening. So those three components together form communication. And if you have a flawed platform where it allows the words to escape in the right way, but the tonality is conspicuously absent, you're not going to get very far in this world as a salesperson, a communicator, as an influencer, as a negotiator, because people just say you don't sound convincing. You sound like like you don't really believe in what you're saying. You don't sound sincere when you actually are sincere. Mm. So this notion that that sales done properly is manipulative or it's, you know, you're acting. It's actually not. It's about being congruent. It's about getting across the way you, you, you're feeling inside the people so they understand the way you feel. Like, not, like, not I'm really confident. I'm, like, I'm really, really confident. I'm really sure of myself. And I know this is the best thing in the world for you. Like, you're like, really? You don't, you don't sound like it right now. Like, where it's like, I am totally confident. I am 1000% sure of myself. And I know it's the best thing in the world for you. Like, where you're like, oh, fuck, he must really mean that. Like, where, where mm. like, he used the right tonality. It's just such a huge difference. So, without that skill, it's really hard to live an empowered life. Now, there's many points in the continuum not everyone sucks that bad there's people who are like amazingly great the top 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 one percent the natural born closers then there's people who are okay then there's people who are kind of bad and there's those who are terrible so the point is the straight line system is wherever you are it's going to take you up two levels if you're if you're terrible it'll make you good if you're good it'll make you amazing and if you're amazing it'll make you one of the best in the world that's really what it's about yeah, definitely. And I don't think sales is necessarily being a salesperson or anything. It has a negative connotation, but I don't think it is. I and mean, we've had Robert Green on the show and he talks about the fact that everyone in essence is an actor in some form. We act differently to when we're with our mom or with our dad than when we're with some of our best friends and we're going out drinking at night versus when we're talking to our boss or talking to a client. These are all things that we have to make some iterations on. Um, and, and I think those are important points for people to know. Now, I want to dig deeper, Jordan, into some of the details of what you teach. So one of the things you do, you talk about is first impression. Obviously, that is so important for people when they first make that impression. It's not just for selling. It's just anything, a first date when you're meeting them at a restaurant, although most of the time it's virtual dates these days, or a client or a boss, anyone it might be. So what are some of the things that you teach? That first four seconds you meet them. What are the best ways to make that great impression? So, so in those first few seconds, you know, it's mostly about unconscious communication, things that like tonality, body language, not so much the words that you say, it's how you say the words, how you move your body, how you're dressing, how you appear to someone if it's in person or, you know, in Zoom and they can see you. So it's crucial that you master the art of unconscious communication. That's what happens in those first four seconds. The words, of course, matter too. Those are really easy to learn. And then after those first four seconds, it's about understanding that, you know, whatever first impression you made is just that it's an impression it's not set in stone 
So you have to be consciously, vigilantly aware that everything you say, you're being judged, how you say it, what you say, but it's really based on tonality and body language. Got it. Got it. And there are things that, you know, particularly with the, the, the process of setting up a meeting, is there ways that you can, or are there strategies that you can do before you even meet them that can perhaps increase the likelihood of making a good first impression? It more like more like sure. a persuasion. So, yeah. yeah, sure. So I, I have actually invested in a company recently that has technology that does that. So basically, uh-huh. what it does is the second you if you have a, if you have a call with someone or a meeting, just put their name in, and it instantly will like scrape every bit of their social platforms and come up with a personality profile, a best approach, uh, the types of words that you'd want to say to them, um, the phrases that they'll connect with, the things that you don't want to do, the do's, the don'ts, the personality. And it spits out an opening script, basically, of like what an opening script would look like for this sort of person. That's scary. So that's a huge, huge leap forward, which I'm actually, and it's already, the technology's already out there, and it's, and it's really about to go mainstream now. We've been beta testing it. It works amazingly well. We have some huge companies, like Oracle's testing, it and uh, we're getting amazing results with it. What's it called? Sync up. Sync, Sync up. Sync up. up.com. Sync up. Yeah. So um, you got to just um, basically give it a few more weeks. It'll be out to the public and it's just incredibly powerful. And not only that, but it also has automated prospecting tools. So it just allows you to like go increase a 500% increase in the amount of people you'll even speak to by auto, it's hard to explain, but it uses AI um, to basically, you know, organize someone's calls and it's really powerful stuff. But the best yeah. part is it actually tells you about the person you're speaking to and it's dead on balls accurate. Like it's really crazy how it does it, but like, wow. you know, we're all out there. We have our digital presence out there and this AI, you know, finds out exactly what your personality type is, how fast you should speak to this person, what phrases are going to connect with them, what's, what are the things that they're not going to want to hear, and so forth. It's really cool. That's crazy. Have you been testing this out for podcast guests that you bring on? <laughs> no, I don't need to because I uh, – see, that's the thing with me. I know instantly. You know, like that's the yeah, thing about yeah. Being a, a world class closer, seriously, is like one of the things is like I wouldn't – for me, I wouldn't need that. Mm. I need the prospecting tool. That's great because that just increases your efficiency. But I don't need someone to tell me what to say. I can look at someone I hear in an instant. I, my brain automatically knows, right? But that's really rare. It's very rare that someone's like that. Yeah. And that's, you know, it's an ultra high EQ. And, it, and, and you could teach some of it, but this computer just sort of makes it, takes it out of the equation. It, it, it's really accurate. Mm. It's weird. When I first saw it, I didn't believe it. And I was like, oh, my God. I tested it on like 10 people that I knew. And it was really accurate. It was accurate? Oh, my God. That's so freaky. Yeah. It is insane. Um, well, this will probably lead back to my next question, which is, you know, th- this, is more, this is more of a personal question that I have. You know, for, for us, as we're also looking to raise capital, one of the things that's happening quite often, and this is probably something you've dealt with as well, is people don't give you an, a direct no, right? They kind of lead you along and it's not even a maybe. It's more, I'll get back to you later and sometimes wow, they don't sounds follow great. up. Let me think about it. Sounds really good. Let me think about it. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, great. Let me just speak to my wife. Yeah. Wow. Awesome. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. Yes. That's what the whole and, straight line is based on. The, right. the principle, the general principle from the, on, of the straight line is exactly that, that mm. people don't just say no to you. It would be great if they did. It would be really great if someone like said to you, no, I'm not interested or 
no, I don't trust you enough yet. Or no, I'm not certain enough yet. I don't really know about that. I got to do more research about your product and compare it to others. It'd be great if they said that, but they don't. They say, oh, it sounds good. Let me think about it. Yeah, and that's the hardest thing to overcome because they're not being rude, right? It's not a direct no. So you kind of need to follow up with them, but you you have this feeling where- yeah. It's easy to overcome if you know the straight line. That's the whole, that was the beauty. The breakthrough of the straight line was precisely that. Like that it took this whole ridiculous back and forth of salespeople where someone says, um, sounds good, let me think about it. And you're like, what do you need to think about? <laughs> like, like, they're like nothing. I don't really need to. I was just saying that to be nice. They don't. There's people just say that because it's like an easy way. Of, it's like a socially acceptable way of diffusing the pressure of saying to someone, I don't trust you. Or yeah. I don't know how, I don't think your product is as good as you say it is. I got to check. Like, it's all about uncertainty. They're not certain enough yet, right? And people don't say that because it's kind of like considered to be, wow, that's rude. Like, you know, you don't trust me, it's rude. <laughs> it's really not. It actually be, it's, I don't think it's rude, but that's how we're raised. So mm-hmm. there's this inherent dishonesty in communication with salespeople. So the straight line cuts through that by completely deflecting the initial objection. So someone says to me, you know, Oh, it sounds good. Let me think about it. I'm like, all right. Um, I know the person just, that means, that means nothing to me. Like just, that doesn't mean he needs to think about it. like, I'm like, well, what do you need to think? Is it, is that something I left out? Like, that's the worst thing you could say. Yeah. Like, what do you need yeah. to think of right now? But you know, it's like, it's just dumb. It doesn't, it doesn't work. It's just creates a total break of rapport. So like, when someone says to me, let me think about it, I'm like, I, I understand you want to think about it. Let me just ask you a question. Does the idea make sense to you? Do you like the product? I, I, I completely ref- – they're like, yeah, it sounds pretty good. Now, it sounds pretty good. It's not like, oh, my God, yeah, I love it. Like, people mm. don't buy shit when they say, it's, yeah, it sounds okay. I'm not buying it. So I have work to do. I have to convince someone. I have to resell them on my idea. Very often when you're done making your initial presentation, the prospect's just not convinced yet. They need to know more. It's normal. People don't get convinced all at once. They get to a certain level of certainty. They back off. They get even more. So when someone says they want to think about it, I want to call you back. What they're really saying is I'm not certain. Yeah. I'm not certain about your product, maybe. Or maybe I am certain about your product. I just don't trust you. I don't know you. I've never done business with you before. Right. Why right. is it so much easier to make repeat sales to the same person? Because they trust you now. You've already done business with them. There's a trust factor involved, right? So, so the thing is, like, so if, you, much if they certain. don't trust you already, how do you how do you de-risk the chance of them being thrown off or not liking that you're being too pushy, especially when there's not that much trust yet, right? This guy's going to probably think like, oh, like, why is this guy pushing me? I don't even know him or her. All right. Well, that's that's the, the ne- another major breakthrough to the straight line is that is that there's ways to like really quickly establish trust with other people because like the human brain is really weird. Like we tend to distrust someone a lot more than we should when we initially meet them. And then once we start to trust the person, when we make the decision to trust, we trust them a lot more than they should. We should. The truth mm. typically lies somewhere in the middle. No one's that this, you know, not trustworthy and no one should be trusted that complete. But the human brain, when that pendulum of trust starts to swing to, wow, I trust you, it swings hard, fast, and completely Yeah. in a conversation. Yeah. So the, the magic is how do you get that pendulum swinging in the right direction? Because once it swings, it will swing fully. 
People Got don't kind of trust. They trust or don't trust. That's how it typically happens in the world of sales. So the idea is like, you know, how do you, how do you um, get someone to trust you in a minute if they don't know you, never did business with you before, have no bay, how do you do that? So for the straight line, we use a combination of a few things, but one of them, the most powerful one is called the Forrest Gump pattern. It's named after the movie Forrest Gump. Yeah. And the reason is because there's a great scene in the movie when young Forrest is like five years old and he's going to school and he's waiting for the bus his first day and, and the bus driver pulls up and Forrest is not that bright, right? And the driver pulls up and the door opens and he looks up at the driver and he freezes like a deer in the headlights. And the driver looks down and she's like, well, are you getting on? And he says, my mom had told me not to talk to strangers. And she looks down and she's like, well, this is the bus to school. Yeah. And Forrest just looks at her and he's like, well, that doesn't solve my problem. Like, I don't know you, I don't trust you. And this is like, so like this is sort of freezing. And then the bus driver starts to realize what she's dealing with because he's looking off at the space like Forrest does. And she's like, well, you know, are you going to get on? And he looks at her and Forrest in his infinite wisdom says, well, my name is Forrest, Forrest Gump. And she says, well, I'm Dorothy. I'm your bus driver. She goes, well, I guess we're not strangers anymore. And he gets on the freaking bus, right? Mm. So uh, the point is, if you, you know, first of all, if you want someone to trust you, say, let me reintroduce myself. My name is so-and-so. I'm a senior vice president. I pride my, tell them who you are. Tell them what your name is. Tell them why they should trust you. Tell them what you do for your clients. Tell them what your core ethics are, your principles, your credentials. you got to tell someone in your sale. Let me just – you, you might have met someone in the beginning of the sale. You go through a presentation. They forgot your name already. Yeah. They don't even know you in a lot of these cold calling or like you know, you know high-volume selling propositions, right? So I you say, let me just take a moment to reintroduce – I say like, listen, you know, you, you, let me ask you a question. If, you know, if I – known you for the last three or four years, if I've been making you money on a consistent basis, selling you real piece of real estate, the piece of real estate, the piece of real estate, and now I can't do with another piece of real estate, you probably wouldn't be saying, let me think about it. You'd be saying, Jordan, let's just, let's sign on the dotted line. If everyone had made you money, am I right? They say, well, yeah, well, then I would. Mm. Say, exactly, you don't know me, I don't have a track record. Let me take a moment to reintroduce myself. My name, again, my and now, my name is Jordan, but I'll tell them who I am. Tell them what I do for my clients. Tell them what I stand for. And all of a sudden, they're like, oh, wow. And, they, and I say, and as far as my company goes, and I'll talk about my company. And, I, and then I start raising their level of certainty for these three elements, the three tens, I call them, the, for the product, for yourself, the salesperson, and the company that stands behind the product. So that's the system that we use. And it's so powerful when you use it. It's almost shocking. People yeah. go from completely not trusting you to trusting you in like a minute. Hmm. And do some of these strategies with, with the straight line sales or just any form of selling or communication, now that we're in the pandemic area where everyone is doing things via video or Zoom and sometimes even audio, right? There's no body communication in that sense. Uh, are there things that you would need to alter your strategy or do something different in that sense? That what do you think? Listen, this is, the funny, this is the funniest question ever because what did we do at Stratton? How did we make, make sales? Phone calls. Phone calls. The straight line is designed for distance selling. It was designed to overcome the problems of not being face-to-face -face because nothing happens on Wall Street face-to-face. -face. It's all done over the phone. So the straight line system was the magic bullet that allowed people to get the same results they could normally get face-to-face -face by using body language because what happens is, is that in the absence of body language, it collapses into tonality. Tonality becomes crucial. So yeah. we learn to use words and tonality that almost replaces the need for body language. And the straight line allows you to do that in a seamless way. 
away. It was designed for just that. Mm, got it. Got it. Well, this is really powerful stuff, Jordan. I, I really appreciate that. Um, I wanted to know, you know, there, you don't meet a lot of people that have gone through kind of these roller coaster rides that you have. And I'm curious to know, what are some of the truths that you've learned about life that looking back, you're like, okay, like all of these things have remained true for me in terms of happiness, in terms of fulfillment, purpose, whatever it might be for you. Number one, you can't be half pregnant when it comes to ethics. You know, you can't do things right most of the time and then have your little spots and then break the law. And it just doesn't work that way. Like your ethical line will move. So one thing is, you know, either you're ethical or you're not. You can't be partially ethical. That's one big lesson I learned. Number two is I've learned that good things take time. Like my I've learned to, to, to sort of tame my desire for instant gratification. You know, I believe the only way to get rich is quick. But. That's not a get rich quick scheme. It's like, you know, you work really hard and don't get the result. You work really hard. You don't get the result. You work really hard. You don't get the result. And, and suddenly the last piece of the puzzle falls into place and you, bam, you're an overnight success after two years of hard work. So it's like about, you know, willing to go through the stuff it takes to line up all the elements of success to get to that, you know, that last point. Number three is that the road to success is not paved with failure. Like lots of failures don't equal success. Like in other words, mm. the, the idea is like, it's like you success is not so much of a destination. It's what you bring to everything you do. Like if like you have to, you, you bring it to the table every single day. And that ultimate success is the sum of a lot of small successes along the way. You just can't be like, you know, it's not, you know, people have this thing. Oh, I'm just waiting for my queen Mary to come in. I'm waiting for my, the, my, my, my magic ship to, the, to, it doesn't work like that. It's like all this, it's all that's the grind is important. It's like grinding it out every day, bringing success to what you do, you know? And then I think along those lines also is like, you know, that, that, you know, you can't, the idea of like that, that goals are your highest level of, of, of conquest is just like, it's really toxic to be a, a chronic goal setter. I set goals, but I have a vision on top of my goals. And my vision is much more important because, you know, what's the difference? Daily goals just serve. What's that? Oh, you're talking about daily goals versus long term goals? Or what's the difference between vision vision and goals? Well, goals have a beginning point and an end point, and there's the, the targets I aim for versus a vision is much more long term. It has to do with my entire life. My emotional connection is to my vision. I'm not emotionally connected to my goals. If you're right. emotionally connected to your goals, that you know, I'm going to have my, my my happiness is based on achieving goals. You're going to live a very miserable life because you're going to be miserable until you get to your goal. Then you get to your goal, you're happy for a second. You're like, all right, what's next? He said a new goal. So you're like never happy. So like right. my, my goals are really just more about am I going in the right direction or the wrong direction? I'm not emotionally attached to them. I let them go all the time and I set new ones if they're not working. My emotional attachment is to my long-term outcome. That's a big one. Beautiful, beautiful. And also lastly is that that – it doesn't matter what – I think the, the biggest thing, there's one overarching thing that defines my life is that you're not, the, you're not the mistakes of your past. You're the resources and capabilities that you glean from your past mistakes. Like if you – the only way you, the past will equal your future is if you, if you just choose to live in the past. You get stronger from your mistakes. You grow from your mistakes. So if you want to learn from mistakes, you can become unstoppable. That's a big one. Yeah, yeah. Except from someone that's actually done it and reinvented himself. So I appreciate your time, Jordan, on this. Where can people find you online? Where, what, where where should we take people to? Instagram, you know, Wolf of Wall Street on Instagram. You know, it's easy to find me. Just Google me. You could find me everywhere. Yes, sir. All right. Thanks so much for tuning in, guys. Thanks so much, Jordan. Take care, Sean. Bye bye. Beauty.
Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the show. Hope you really enjoyed our guest today and that you took one thing valuable from our conversation. If you haven't already, I would love it if you could leave a quick rating or review on whichever network you're listening to the show and share this episode with one friend if you found it valuable. And if it's something that a friend, a family member, or just someone that you care about could find a little bit of insight from what you learned today. All right. Ciao.